Hi, my name is Matt Bostuman. I'm a real estate funds partner in the asset management practice at Ropes and & Gray. And I'm here with Nicole Cray, a regulatory partner in the asset management practice here at Ropes. And we wanted to talk about proposed changes to the SEC's custody rule and how that would apply to real estate. Nicole, perhaps you can talk first about the rule at a high level, and then we can get into more detail about how it applies to real estate. Thanks, Matt. So in February of this year, 2023, the SEC proposed significant amendments to the custody rule, which would actually be redesignated as the safeguarding rule. These requirements had an impact on virtually all aspects of the custody rule that registered advisors are required to comply with today, including some pieces that are really very fundamental to the rule and how they interact with the business of advisors managing real assets. Uh, to be clear, the custody rule continues to apply only to SEC registered investment advisors. So for example, if an advisor isn't registered, whether due to an exception or because, for example, it advises solely with respect to real estate and not with respect to securities, the rule still will, will not apply. To those SEC registered advisors, this really is, uh, particularly if adopted as proposed, um, it would have a sweeping impact on custody rule compliance and an impact uh, more broadly on pieces of the business. So Matt, as someone who spends quite a lot of time advising on real estate matters, before we start sort of ticking through each piece of the new rule and its impact, presumably from your perspective, the biggest piece for real estate managers here is that the custody rule now clearly applies to physical real estate assets. Uh, am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think the new rule is pretty clear. And and uh, as you said, RAAs, Real Registered Investment Advisors, what do they do? They're, they need to register when they advise in the purchase and sale of securities. And, and real estate is, is clearly not a security. And so in the past, we haven't had to worry about the custody rule. But now it seems, Nicole, that real estate is clearly a physical asset and that the SEC clearly wants to sweep real estate uh, into this this new rule. Although, Nicole, maybe you can get into this a little bit. I, even the rule itself seems to be a little bit um, talking out of both sides of their mouth in terms of how the rule would apply to real estate. I agree. I think that that's exactly right. To take a step back, right, currently the rule applies to advisors with custody as a legal status set out in the rule of client, quote unquote, funds and securities, right? No concept of other assets or physical assets or anything along those lines. Under the new rule, this is fundamentally changed and it applies more generally to client assets and assets will be clearly uh, inclusive of fund securities and other positions held in a client account. The commentary around the, the new rule, right, in connection with the new proposed rule, there is a proposing release, as there always is, uh, that made very uh, explicitly clear that physical real estate would be included as um, a position held in a client's account and therefore an asset, and they're subject to the custody rule. And so that inclusion of physical real estate really is a fundamental shift. Notably, and somewhat logically, right, and this gets to the point that Matt was noting, the rule, which still will require generally a qualified custodian requirement when an advisor has uh, custody with respect to um, client assets, uh, base requirements still to be held by a qualified custodian. The rule would not require that physical assets like real estate be held by a qualified custodian. There's, of course, an acknowledgement that that's not logical. There's an exception for physical assets that can't be held by a qualified custodian, as well as an exception for privately offered securities. Um, we'll get more into that exception in a moment. 
But the commentary around the rule really does introduce the open question as to, well, what about, for example, a deed to physical real estate? Sure, a physical building cannot be held by a qualified custodian. That's that's very clear, both based on logic and based on the rule. The proposing release seems to acknowledge, right, that a deed, and I'm quoting from the proposing release here, a deed or similar indicia of ownership that could be used to transfer beneficial ownership of a property wouldn't qualify for the exception from the requirement to be held by a qualified custodian, but the physical buildings or land would qualify. If in fact, the the proposed rule is bifurcating the asset and ownership of the asset, this could put you in a situation where you might be looking at a situation where a deed would need to be held by a qualified custodian. Notably, where assets are held by qualified custodian, the new requirement actually imposes um, as proposed, a requirement on advisors to maintain client assets with a qualified custodian that has possession or control of those client assets, right? So we could be in a position where not only do you have a deed being held by a qualified custodian, but um, the qualified custodian needing to um, have possession or control, which means under the new proposed rule that the qualified custodian would be required to participate in any change in beneficial ownership of those assets and that the qualified custodian's participation would effectuate the transaction being involved in that change of beneficial ownership. That would be a rather notable change here. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, um, as those of you in the real estate industry know, the way that title to real estate is transferred is that you have a deed that is um, given by the seller to the buyer, and then that deed is recorded with the county recorder of deeds. And it's that recording that's the the real evidence of ownership. And um, what the rule seems to suggest is that title to the real estate as recorded in the county recorder would now need to be recorded in the name of a, a bank as qualified custodian. Obviously, this is a business that um, banks are not currently in. So there's a question, obviously, as to you know whether this is something that they would want to get into. Uh, I was trying to think of an analog uh, to it, and I was thinking about perhaps a context where you have a bank or trust company that holds title to a piece of real estate for a, a trust. Um, that was kind of the closest analog to it, but, um, you know, query whether that's a, a business now that banks want to get into, you know, with respect to this qualified custodian idea, do they want to have the liability uh, of an owner? Um, it, it also, it, it, it strikes me that, um, for, again, for those of you who are involved in the real estate industry, the title company is very involved in the transfer of the real estate um, that's where your real estate closings take place. The title company provides title insurance to uh, the buyer or to a lender that's um, uh, getting a mortgage. And uh, perhaps a, a, a title company actually might be a better entity in the real estate context to serve as a, a qualified custodian. Um, Nicole, maybe you can talk a little bit about the um, exemption uh, side of this, as, as I mentioned before, it seems like the SEC wants the 
holders of real estate to qualify with uh, the custody rule uh, in the context of title, but then also um, with respect to the land and building itself, wants uh, holders of real estate to comply with the uh, requirements for the exemption. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? The, the the reasonable safeguarding of assets. Sure, and and that's and that's a great point, and one of what I would say is uh, you know one of the oddities that we might see in the proposed rule. As we noted, and as Matt was describing, you might have a situation where we're looking to comply with the various qualified custodian requirements with respect to evidence of ownership, like a deed. But then on top of that, there is a clear exemption built out in the proposed rule for privately offered securities and physical assets, right? So the physical land, the real estate, the building would certainly qualify as a physical asset that doesn't need to be held by a qualified custodian. But the inquiry and analysis and, and compliance obligations um, really don't end there. Um, that's another sort of big shift, I will say, uh, from the current rule where there is similarly an exemption from the requirement to have privately offered securities held by a qualified custodian. And, and beyond that, there really isn't a set of compliance obligations that come along with the manner in which those privately offered securities need to be held, um, at least from a, from, from a rule perspective. So now, right, to satisfy the exception um, from having physical assets held by a qualified custodian, um, there are a number of, uh, of compliance obligations. So to tick through them briefly, an advisor must, one, reasonably determine, based on a reasonable understanding of the relevant marketplace, um, that ownership cannot be recorded and maintained in a manner in which a qualified custodian can maintain possession or control of assets. With respect to physical real estate, it's very clear that a qualified custodian cannot maintain possession or control of assets. Two, reasonably safeguard the assets from loss, theft, misuse, misappropriation, or financial reserves, including insolvency. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, three, have an independent public accountant verify any purchase, sale, or other transfer of beneficial ownership of the assets and notify the SEC's division of examination within one business day upon finding any material discrepancy. Four, a notification requirement to notify the independent public accountant engaged to perform the verification of any purchase, sale, or other transfer of beneficial ownership of the assets within one business day. And five, have the accountant verify the existence and ownership of each of the client's privately offered securities or physical assets that are not maintained with a qualified custodian during that annual independent verification. So for any of, of those listening who are familiar with the current custody rule surprise exam requirement, it feels like it almost imposes a surprise exam requirement on um, assets not held by a qualified custodian, right? So this imposes a whole new set of compliance obligations onto uh, assets that either because they were not subject to the custody rule, like real estate assets, or were previously exempt, and that was the end of the story. Now we've got a, you know, a whole five-prong set of, of compliance obligations, right? I think perhaps most interesting, um, as Matt alluded to earlier, when we apply this to real estate assets, is this um, requirement for reasonable safeguarding which just to say it, when we think about this in the examination context, um, really is sort of ripe for being viewed with 2020 hindsight if there were ever an issue, right? Um, you know, there's an issue with, um, you know, security of the, uh, of the particular real estate asset or something happens uh, open for a question of whether or not it was reasonably safeguarded, right? 
the SEC includes a discussion about reasonable safeguarding um, with respect to physical assets in the proposing release to the rule. They do acknowledge that an advisor might reasonably safeguard those assets by looking to reasonable commercial standards in the applicable industry and that those standards and those actions for reasonable safeguarding would be tailored um, right to each particular physical asset depending upon the standards in its market. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think nevertheless, notwithstanding that flexibility, right, the imposition of a uh, reasonable safeguarding requirement under the custody rule, just from a fiduciary perspective, um, with respect to any client assets, right, you know, it certainly imposes a new level of potential liability, you know, and again, sort of oversight and second guessing of, for example, what insurance is in place, right, um, uh, you know, what um, what controls are are applicable, um, you know, at the, at the particular real estate asset, at the particular property, right, which is really um, kind of an entirely new lens through which to view those, to view those contexts. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Nicole. Just kind of taking apart the the reasonable safeguarding. As I mentioned before, title to real estate can only be transferred, you know, using a title company and, and recording the the change of title and in, in the recorder of deeds. So, and as I mentioned, buyers and 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 lenders with respect to real estate obtain title insurance from the title company. So it, it, it would be very, very difficult for someone to uh, steal real property in a building. Um, but this this misuse um, requirement is, uh, as you said, um, very ripe for, for second guessing. Um, in the institutional real estate market, it's obviously very uh, uh, typical and common to obtain uh, property and, and casualty insurance, but you could certainly second guess the amount of coverage. Um, it's also very common for institutional real estate managers to hire property managers who are often on site at the property and, and can inspect it uh, from time to time. But um, uh, the SEC really is uh, getting into an area uh, where it doesn't have any experience and uh, it's really problematic to have a regulator with no experience in the industry starting to uh, you know, supervise how uh, managers are dealing with their real estate. I, I want to talk a little bit, too, uh, about the verification requirement. Again, for those of you who may not be as familiar with how real property is transferred, you record the title um, transfer in the recorder of deeds. And um, as you might imagine, uh, this process varies quite a bit from county to county. Um, many of the larger counties, um, and I would say, you know, perhaps more well-off counties, have um, do this now online, where you can search title online. But uh, they don't all. And um, you might think about, say, uh, a warehouse or something that might be in a more uh, rural location where it's not that easy to um, check whether a title has been properly transferred. And it may not happen immediately upon recording. It may take some time for that to uh, work through the system. So it's um, it's not like, um, say, perhaps with a public security where you can, you can see that uh, title change uh, show up immediately. That whole process 
I think is um, ripe for footfalls as um, an auditor may need to you know, check multiple times before it sees that the, the title has actually been uh, transferred. Another interesting point about that, Matt, is, and it, it was interesting to me because the SEC explicitly noted it in its in its proposing release, right? But that the advisor will have to pay a public, you know, the independent public accountant for those services and the cost of which might be passed on to, you know, clients or investors. And the SEC acknowledges that verification costs are, are likely to vary across advisors depending upon the type of client assets and notes in particular that a transaction involving a real estate asset that requires independent public account verification is likely to be costlier to verify than a transaction that can be verified electronically or, or, or via telephone, right? For example, a uh, you know, a, a public security. So, um, you know, there's there's a, a a risk element and also an increased burden and cost element that comes along here. Yeah, this also seems like another task that might be better suited to a title company than uh, an independent accounting firm. Most large institutional managers have a uh, relationship with one, maybe two uh, national title companies, and uh, that title company. Uh, will be very familiar with the uh, property recording processes in all the various counties and would be in a much better position to uh, verify uh, that title has been recorded and and also when would be the right time to look to see that that title transfer has shown up. Nicole, what else is uh, uh, changing in this rule? Are there any changes to the uh, audit or surprise examination requirements? Moving beyond the very notable changes to what needs to be held by a qualified custodian and the exceptions from that, there is some impact that I think is of particular relevance to real estate managers when it comes to audit requirements, right? So under the current custody rule, there is a requirement um, as, as one method of complying with, uh, with the custody rule to rely on what's known as the audit exemption, which effectively states that um, for pooled investment vehicles, there's no need to obtain a surprise examination, which could be more burdensome in some respects, uh, so long as the pooled investment vehicle is audited at least annually pursuant to certain established standards and the um, audited financial statements are distributed to investors within a, within a prescribed time period. And it's a very common method of compliance with the custody rule. Um, the uh, There are a few changes to, to those requirements now. So, um, you know, and, and they are uh, sometimes beneficial, sometimes less beneficial, depending upon uh, right to whom they are applying. Uh, so one is there's expanded availability for use of this, quote unquote, you know, audit uh, compliance route um, from just pooled investment vehicles to any entities. Right. So, you know, an entity, not just a pooled investment vehicle, could be able to comply with the audit exemption. There are certain other um, changed requirements. But I think perhaps most notably here is that the SEC has very unhelpfully also stated that an advisor in, in its guidance, um, an advisor would be required to treat an SBV, right? So a structuring vehicle held under the fund um, as a separate client for purposes of safe uh, of this safeguarding rule, of this proposed rule. If the SBV has owners other than the advisor, the advisor's related persons or pooled investment vehicles controlled by the advisor or the advisor's related persons. Right? This is not uh, welcome news 
in um, in the proposing release. This is somewhat uh, restating and modifying guidance that the SEC had previously given um, several years ago, uh, often referred to as sort of the SPV's custody guidance, in which it acknowledged certain situations in, where an SPV, special purpose vehicle below a fund, would or would not need to obtain a separate audit. And as part of that guidance, which is sort of heavily relied upon, there was sort of the acknowledgement that inherent in any determination that a special purpose vehicle would need a separate audit was a threshold determination as to whether that special purpose vehicle was in fact um, a separate client under, you know, under under the rule. And that uh, there are facts and circumstances that could be taken into account in determining whether or not that they were separate clients. So this guidance that clearly um, picks up uh, entities, not just pooled investment vehicles, but makes clear that if we have any third parties coming into uh, a special purpose vehicle below the fund that a separate audit would be needed is is not really welcome um, news, uh, particularly for real estate managers, where we spend a lot of time thinking about application of the custody rule and the audit requirements to say a REIT, right? A REIT subsidiary under a fund or a client largely being held by the client, but we may have the 100 preferred shareholders for um, satisfaction of certain REIT requirements. This somewhat stricter guidance with respect to um, SPVs having owners other than the advisor, the advisor's related persons, or pooled investment vehicles controlled by the advisor would not apply favorably to that to that sort of situation. That's right. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the use of private REIT subsidiaries, there is an IRS requirement that REITs have at least 100 shareholders, and that's often satisfied um, in the private REIT subsidiary context by having 100 to, say, 150 preferred shareholders who each buy one preferred share for $500 to $1,000 a piece. So the ownership of the REIT subsidiary is still 99.99% in favor of the uh, fund or other pooled investment vehicle. Um, and to start having independent audit requirements for each of these REIT subsidiaries could be quite burdensome. And, and in the past, we were able to uh, get out of that because the subsidiary of the fund was not a client in the same way that the fund was. Thinking about another uh, context where this might come up, would be, say, in a situation where a fund is party to a joint venture. Now, the joint venture would be uh, swept into this requirement. And where you have institutional funds entering into joint ventures, usually those are with uh, real estate operators who are not themselves registered investment advisors. Again, because as Nicole said before, they're only dealing with investments in real estate and so don't have the need to register and to start imposing these additional requirements on these unregistered real estate operators could also be seen as as quite burdensome to to those real estate operators. Nicole, when are these changes uh, scheduled to take effect? It, it's a it's a great question and I think a really important point to keep in mind here because, Right now, entirely unknown. Um, these are all just proposed rules at this point. Um, and as I think that you know, most can pick up from uh, the content discussed in this discussion, you know, and in a number of different places throughout the rest of the proposed rule, 
Right. There are some aspects of this proposed rule that we haven't even touched on, including those that we have that um, are uh, gathering a lot of industry comment are going to, if adopted as proposed, um, uh, you know, be very problematic in a number of ways. And um, so this is just a proposed rule. It is subject to extensive comment. We are just nearing the end of the comment period. There will be some period of time between, and it's never quite known, um, some period of time between the end of the comment period for the SEC to con uh, consider what we are expecting to be very extensive industry comment, consider those comments, um, and then either um, uh, come up with a an adopted version of the rule or repropose um, new changes, depending upon you know, what would change between the uh, proposed rule and the, and the adopted rule, right? And then when we um, ultimately have an adopted rule, you know, there will certainly be um, a, a transition period whereby uh, registered advisors will be expected to prepare for and come into compliance with uh, the new rule as, as adopted. So, I, you know, I think that the hope is that there are some changes as between what is proposed here and what is ultimately adopted, right? You know, we'll need to see what's ultimately adopted and then what the uh, what the transition period will will be once, you know, once adopted. And a, a key point to keep in mind, which again, could be subject to change um, to the extent uh, we see movement as between the proposed rule and the adopted rule, that in the current version of the proposed rule, there is no grandfathering. Right. And what I mean by that is there is no exception from the application of these proposed requirements and changes to arrangements already in place with existing clients, existing custodians. Right. So if adopted as proposed, once we get through a transition period, uh, the requirements would apply to existing arrangements and new arrangements. Right. Um, but again, we're expecting uh, and are seeing uh, extensive comment on on all of this. So what's ultimately adopted will very much um, remain to be seen. Yeah, the lack of grandfathering would be quite burdensome to many existing large real estate funds. We think in particular about the large open-end funds that have hundreds of properties that they hold for many, many years. It'd be a massive undertaking to have to transfer title to all those properties to uh, a qualified custodian. Yeah, certainly in this initial uh, proposal, uh, there seems to be a, a lack of, of understanding in terms of uh, how uh, real estate is managed and how, how title is transferred. And hopefully through uh, the comment process, the SEC will get a little bit better idea uh, as to how title and possession of, of real estate should be handled. And then, of course, we'll need to figure out who actually is willing to uh, serve as a qualified custodian and a uh, verifier of title, assuming those those requirements continue to apply. So uh, we look forward to seeing how that turns out. Thank you to our listeners. And, and thank you, of course, to Nicole for speaking with me about this. For more information on the topics that we discussed, please visit our website, at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, we can help you navigate any of the topics we discussed. Please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can also subscribe and listen to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.